Alrighty, well, good morning again. While I'm getting situated up here, please turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. So, we are in Mark chapter 2 this morning. If you didn't know, uh, when Pastor Derek preaches, right now we're going through the book of Roman, Romans, uh, but when I have the opportunity to preach God's word to you, we have the opportunity to go through the gospel of Mark. And thank you, Chris, for that prayer for Grove Community Church. The reason why we're going through Mark is because this will actually be the first book that we will preach through in Seals Grove. Uh, so I was telling uh, someone earlier this morning that you're kind of like the guinea pigs. Uh, so if there's anything you hear that's like, hey, that didn't really land well, or hey, that worked well, uh, please let me know, because uh, we'll, I'll be preaching this again. And if it didn't work, uh, I would like to know that. Uh, but thank you so much um, just for your love and grace each and every time where I'm able to open up God's Word with you. <clears throat> so we just had Thanksgiving. It's just a wonderful time, right, of, of expressing our gratitude and our thanksgiving for all the ways that we've been blessed. Uh, but, but unfortunately, right, now that Thanksgiving is over, our eyes is set on the big Christmas holiday. One of, one of my favorite things that I did as a kid was actually on Thanksgiving Day. What my mom would do, she'll wake up earlier that morning, go to the local gas station, and buy the newspaper. And inside the newspaper on Thanksgiving Day in, in South Carolina, there was multiple, multiple shopping ads with all the Black Friday deals. I think some of you know what I'm talking about. So after we had this big feast, what we did every single year after Thanksgiving, my, me and my siblings, we would run into the living room and we would just circle everything that we thought we needed. Right? We would circle the new electronics, we will circle clothes, games, everything we thought we needed. One year, my sister, she was about nine, she circled an elliptical, since that's exactly what a nine-year-old needs, right? But then, finally, I got a little bit older. I graduated from circling the ads, and my mom invited me to actually go Black Friday shopping. Now, if you've ever been Black Friday shopping, one of the best ways I can describe it is adrenaline. There is adrenaline in the air, right? You got your shopping cart, and you're like trying to fight through the aisles. You see prices of your favorite items, you know, slash 30, 40, 50% off. Shopping carts are full. And, and like you looking around, you're like, I just don't want to miss out, I don't want to miss out on any good deal. So you start throwing stuff in there that you're like, I need it. You know, another set of Tupperware, I need it. When we all know we probably have plenty of it, but yet it's on sale and we need it. See, there's this word that comes up this time of year. It's, it's a word that happens throughout all the year, but really this time of year. And culture has really begun to define this word, and, and in my opinion, in a pretty sloppy way to be honest. It's this word need. Need. I mean, parents, grandparents, you know, you know this. You know, your little one comes up to you, like, mom, dad, I, I need this toy. 
There's not a life worth living, right, without this toy. I need it. Uh, Mandy, actually, she got me this past fishing season. I, I went up to her. I was like, hey, babe, I need a new fishing rod. Like, I need to catch bigger and better fish, and I need this. And she, she just looks at me. She's like, do you really need it? You know, like, it's easy to fall in that trap when you think you need something to make your life better. But in the reality, it's just a want. So as, before we get into our passage this morning, I just have one simple question. What is your single greatest need? What is your single greatest need? If you can think of one thing under this universe of your greatest need in this life, what is it? Because actually what the gospel does and what our passage will show us is that this idea of need is a countercultural thing. Where the gospel shows us that to truly satisfy our neediness, it's not something that we'll buy from Walmart or get off Amazon. But our true need is met by Jesus Christ. Our main point that we'll see this morning is this, is that our spiritual paralysis is healed by Christ's authority. And we'll, we'll talk more about that here in a second. So with that being said, I just want to invite you, will you stand with me as we read Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12? And we stand so that we are honoring and recognizing that we are hearing from the Lord and his word this morning. So Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they cannot get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Church, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. So we just concluded Mark chapter 1. Uh, Mark chapter 1 was a jam-packed 
chapter of events. Mark really, he just hopped right into Jesus' ministry. Like he didn't even talk about the virgin birth. He didn't talk about Jesus' early years. He just kind of went straight into the action of Jesus' ministry. And the big thing that Mark was showing us in chapter one is that Jesus is the long-awaited king, the king that was promised the Messiah king. And the way that Mark was doing that, like all kings have authority Mark was trying to show us the authority of this king, of Jesus. So there in chapter 1, we saw Jesus having authority over demons, where he could cast demons out and silence demons. Jesus had authority over a sickness. Jesus has authority when he spoke and when he taught in the synagogues. So Jesus has all this authority, but now in Mark chapter 2, Mark is going to introduce a new kind of authority. The authority that Jesus has over sin, specifically to forgive sin. And church, this authority is good news. It is good news because we are in need. We are helpless We are in this sinful, spiritual paralysis because of our sin. But guess what? Jesus has the authority to help you and to help me. But let's look at that in a bigger picture in our first point. Point one, our helpless nature. Our helpless nature. As we think about the Bible... The Bible answers a lot of questions about life. It gives clarity on reality. And one of the first things that the Bible answers about life is death. Why is there death? What we see in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, God created everything good. He created a creation without death. But if we just hop over to Genesis chapter 3, we are reminded why death today exists. The reason why that we have death is because of sin. When Adam and Eve, when they took part of that fruit of the tree of good and evil, sin entered the world, they disobeyed God, and then out of that, the result is a broken relationship with God, but as well with that, death became part of creation. Paul actually picks this up in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So, So church, there's no escaping this helpless state that we're in on our own. We are all bound to death. Our sin has led us there. The Bible is clear on that reality. But what Mark is going to show us in our passage is that although our sin brings us to a helpless nature, it brings us to death that there, has, there is one who has come to help us. So now we're in chapter 2, and we begin to see this. But, but let's get a little bit of the context, the backdrop of our story here. Look, look at verse 1 with me. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he, talking about Jesus, was at home. So we see here in verse 1, Jesus has now returned back to Capernaum. There in chapter 1, we saw that Jesus spent a little bit of time 
doing ministry here in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, we know that he taught in the synagogues. He casted out demons and he healed people. Uh, He had a pretty fruitful ministry there in Capernaum. But Jesus says, all right, it's time for me to go. It's time for me to go to the next towns and start preaching there also. So he started going throughout all of Galilee, doing the same, doing these amazing miracles. And he was preaching the word to them. And now Jesus is back. He's in familiar territory. He's already kind of made a reputation here in Capernaum. And you know, notice here in the text that Mark says that Jesus went back home. This is kind of like Jesus' base of operation. Uh, I was, when I was kind of figuring out, did Jesus have a home or not, I was looking at some commentaries, and a lot of commentaries would agree that this is actually more than likely the fisherman's home, the home of Simon Peter. So this is pretty neat. Now, Jesus was doing ministry in this home before, and you know, Mark is attributing this to be the place of Jesus' home. But now Jesus is back at home. He's in Capernaum. And what Mark's going to do is quite interesting. He's going to actually paint two different pictures, two different groups of people of how they responded to the return of Jesus being back home. So let's, let's look at that together. The first response to Jesus being back home, the first group is here in verse 2. It says this, And many were gathered together. So that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So the first painting or the picture that Mark has shown us is the first group is the crowd. The crowd of people that has gathered in the home. Now the crowd, the many that has gathered, is actually going to be a common theme throughout the entire gospel of Mark. And actually what's interesting, and this is kind of, kind of important. Because what we will see is that crowds do not define ministry success for Jesus. Crowds do not define ministry success. For Jesus did not merely leave the glories of heaven to come to earth to be popular. We know why Jesus left heaven. As Mark tells us in Mark 1.15, because the time is now. The time is ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus came to move the kingdom of God forward. Jesus came not to be popular, but to set the captives free. To proclaim the glorious hope of salvation. To see the heart of the sinner redeemed. Jesus came for the helpless. But here's the thing about the crowds. The crowds had no interest in that message. They had no interest in the message of the kingdom of God. No interest in the message of repentance and faith. The crowds had gathered to be amazed. To be amazed by signs and wonders. Actually, what we see through the Gospel of Mark about the crowds, that Jesus tries to get away from the crowds. He finds moments to get into desolate places so that he could be alone and refresh in the Word and in prayer and with the Father. We actually saw uh, how the crowds obstructed Jesus' ministry last sermon 
If you remember at the end of Mark 1, there was this leper, and Jesus tells the leper, hey, don't say nothing about my healing. Why? Because the crowds will begin to gather, to begin to swarm me, so then I will not be able to continue to do ministry. And there at the end of chapter 1, we saw that Jesus was pushed out into the desolate places because he couldn't do the ministry of preaching in the towns. The crowds obstructed the ministry. So this is that first group that, that Mark wants us to see. It's this crowd. It's a, a crowd that completely filled this house where there was not even room. It, it even went outside of the home. And Mark, in the subtlest way through the gospel, is saying, hey, don't be like the crowd. The crowd is going to be a dangerous place to be. There's this trend in American Christianity. And it's a trend about the crowd. It's about what can the crowd feel? What, what can the crowd consume? Where it's never about the crowd. It's always about Jesus. So what we see about this crowd, they are passive. They're curious. But Mark never records the crowd actually turning to faith turning towards repentance. But then in the second group that Mark shows us, there's a shift that takes place there in verse 3. So we got this home that's full of people, and then out of just five people, a very small group of people, that, that they show an example of what does it mean to take a step of faith. Look at verse 3. And they came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. So we got this scene now with a man laying kind of like on a cot, a paralytic, a guy who's paralyzed that has to be carried. And, and these four friends are like, hey, Jesus is back in Capernaum. Let's get you to him. He could help you. We have faith that he can. We can only imagine the, the excitement from the paralytic or the hope that these friends and this paralytic has knowing that Jesus is back in Capernaum after hearing about all the amazing things that Jesus has been doing. But then there's this issue. As they approach the home that Jesus is in, it's full. There's no room for the paralytic. There's no room for them to walk through. It's just jam-packed. And notice something here. Notice that these four friends didn't tell their paralytic friends, saying, hey, sorry, there's this obstacle in front of us. There's all these people. we got to turn around. we got to go back home. No, no, no. They, they, they see that no matter what, the option of returning back home is not an option we got to find any way to get our friend to Jesus. But here's the thing, church. That's not typically our MO, is it? When the slightest inconvenience is in front of us, when the slightest obstacle is there in front of us, especially, especially when we're trying to take a step of faith, 
There's someone that you know you might should be sharing the gospel for, someone that you should be praying for, someone that you should be caring for. And right when you start taking those steps of faith, right, the slightest obstacles, we're tempted to just say, you know what, I will try again tomorrow. I'm going to turn around and go back home. But that's not on the agenda for these four friends. They're going to get their friend to Jesus. But, but here's what boggles my mind about this. All right, just imagine this scene with me. You got this house. It's not necessarily the biggest house. There maybe about two rooms. It's about the normal size in that time period. It's full of people. You would think that as you see four people carrying a paralytic, that someone in the crowd will be like, hey, Maybe this guy should get to Jesus. But notice that the crowds were so consumed of what they could get that they missed the person who was in need right in front of them. Church, may we never be so blinded to miss those who are in need right in front of us. May we not be so consumed by our our own agenda that we miss those who need Jesus. But the friends put on this coordinated effort to get their paralytic friend to Jesus. Because look at verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let the bed on which the paralytic lay. How cool is that? Jesus is preaching. You want to talk about it interrupting a sermon. Right? He's preaching the word to them. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the good news. And then all of a sudden, there's some like crackling. Maybe some dirt's falling down on the floor. And now there's like this beam of light shining into the room because this guy's being lowered down. There's many ways to interrupt a sermon, but a man being lowered from the roof is probably up there. So now the eyes have shifted. The eyes are now watching these four men lowering their friend down to Jesus. And I just want to pause here for a moment. Because I think there's something for us to, to hold on to here. I can only imagine how thankful this paralytic was to have four friends that was willing to carry him to Jesus. Church, it's not about the, the quantity of people in our lives. It's about the quality. It's about the quality of people in your life that is willing when you are in your deepest, darkest, loneliest days. People that would be willing to pick you up and bring you to Jesus. People who are willingly to remind you of the good news of the word. People who are willing to pray with you. People who are willing to pull you back into community. It's about the... the, The quality of the people, not the quantity. So we have this paralytic who is in this helpless state. He's in this helpless state physically and spiritually. But yet he has four people carrying him to Jesus. And that's the question. Do we have people like that in our lives? So we got these two groups of people. We got the curious Passive crowd, 
who just wants to stand there and consume. And then you got the five people, the four men and the paralytic, just taking a step of faith to get to Jesus, taking action. That's what faith is, is action, moving forward to Jesus. But then Jesus does something maybe on the surface odd or not part of the plan. Because let's, let's look at that. Point two, our greatest need, our greatest need. Uh, so church, there, there's a lot of needs in this world. I mean, we, we don't have to debate that. I, I recently read an article. It, it was this past September by the New York Times. It was an article on the homelessness crisis here in America, and specifically in Los Angeles County. In this article, it just completely blew my mind. It says this. This is a direct quote. Across Los Angeles County last year, so 2021, the unsheltered died in record numbers. An average of five homeless deaths a day, most in plain view of people around them, on the sidewalks, alleys, and lying on the pavement. The article later will go on to say this. It is like wartime death toll in places where there is no war. The crisis of homelessness is awful in our country, even in our community and around the world. This is a massive need. Another major need is that this year, there's an average of about 5.7 million people that will pass away from preventable diseases. That, that if they just had the proper medicine and care, that they will still be here on this creation There's many, many, a plethora of more needs that we can talk about. These are just two. And and these are massive needs. And here in our passage, we got a guy with a clear, massive physical need. But, But the thing about Jesus is that he sees something greater at the paralytic. He he actually looks beyond the physical and then looks at the paralytic's spiritual need because look at verse 5 with me and when jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic my son your sins are forgiven now can you just imagine that scene jesus is teaching there was this interruption right the crowd has gathered and, and you can wonder like Man, Jesus is about to heal this guy. We've heard all about it. And then Jesus says, my son. You know, that that identity shift has just taken place. You know, the outsider, the paralytic has now just been called a child of God, my son. And notice what Jesus does. He says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith. And out of their faith, they had salvation. The paralytic has forgiveness of sin. Jesus saw that the man's greatest need was to not to be able to walk here on this earth, but to one day walk in the glories of heaven. He saw beyond the, the, maybe what was urgent in the now and saw the eternal. And church, that 
is us. We are in a deep place of spiritual paralysis. And it is only by the authority of the Son of God that can save us. My son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw that this paralytic's need was not some kind of external healing, but an internal deliverance. See, the issue, church, is not sin. The issue is unforgiven sin. And Jesus just met his need. And Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, and though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And as, as Chris read earlier for us in Exodus, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. So as we enter into this holiday season, church, we'll hear that word, I need, a lot. But parents, will you see that the need of your kid is to know about Jesus above all? Will you see that the need of your uncle and your cousin and your neighbor is for them to know about Jesus above all? But here's the thing. Despite how beautiful this moment is, Jesus has just forgiven this guy's sin. The response is not so pleasant. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their heart. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So our, our text has really just shifted in an interesting way. Because all eyes were on Jesus and the paralytic, and now our eyes are on the scribes. The scribes were pretty much Old Testament. They were teachers of the word, teachers of the law. And if anyone knew the necessity to have your sins forgiven, it's the scribes. But yet, they look at Jesus and they're like, who is he? So here, the scribes are having this internal wrestle. Either this guy is actually God and he has authority to heal sins, or this guy is blaspheming and he deserves death. These are the scribes. But notice that this was nothing vocal from the scribes. It, it says the text says they were perceiving this in their heart. So, so part of us understanding who Jesus is, is an internal heart issue. It's this internal thing. But this will actually lead us to our final point, And Jesus is absolutely brilliant here. Point three, our great Savior. So Jesus just claimed authority to forgive this guy's sin. And the, the scribes had made it clear in their heart that this guy's blaspheming. He's not God. He deserves to die. But in verse 8, And immediately 
Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Now look, if you want any evidence that this guy is God, maybe about, how about one that could understand your, in, your inward desires? One who can, you know, know what you're thinking, right? Like God knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. And he looks over to these scribes like, why are you questioning my authority? And then Jesus, he, he doesn't even give them an opportunity to respond. You know, they might have gone blah, 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 like speechless, but he doesn't even give them that because look, Jesus goes right into it. He says in verse nine, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Here, Jesus is given the scribes Pretty much an impossible question to answer. It's, it's as if someone came to me and asked the question. This is obviously hypothetical. But if someone came to me and says, Hey, Chapin, can you grow to become six foot or have perfect grammar? Like, both are impossible. Neither one are happening. Same with this. To say your sins are forgiven or to tell a man who is paralyzed to walk, neither one are happening. But if we had to pick which one to be easier, and this is kind of where Jesus begins to trap the scribes. Actually, the easier one is to tell the paralytic to walk. Why? Because only God can forgive sins. But here's the issue. How do you prove it? How do you prove that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins? See, there's a lot of religions that says that they have claimed this is how you reach enlightenment. This is how you have forgiveness. So how do we know Jesus that we're reading about is the one with this authority? But then we get to verse 10. And Jesus kind of begins to... He, he just set them up with that question. And then we get to verse 10 and 11. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. What Jesus is doing, he says, Look, if I can tell this guy who's paralyzed to walk and go home... Why do you have any reason to doubt that I just forgave his sins? If I can do this, surely I can do this. I'm the son of man, meaning that I'm the child of God. I'm the son of God. I am Jesus. I am God. I have the authority to do what I am claiming to do. Here in verse 10 is actually where we probably get the main focal point of our text. Because this text, this story, it's not about the crowds. It's not about the scribes and this interaction. It's the story that we're reading this morning is not even about the paralytic. The story is about who is Jesus. And what Mark is doing is that this Jesus, this God, is the one who can forgive sins. 
See, there's a lot of debate within our culture about who is Jesus. Is Jesus just a good guy? Is he just a good teacher? Did he just do good things? Is he someone that we should follow or is Jesus just a fairy tale? And But what Mark 2 is doing for us, it really unveils who is Jesus. He's the son of God, fully man, fully God, who has the authority to forgive sins. One thing I just love about this is that this Jesus that has just spoken to these scribes and now has spoken to the paralytic is the same Jesus that has spoke the, the creation into existence. The same one that told the mountains to rise from the ground or for the birds to be flying in the sky. The same one who spoke the stars into existence has just spoken to the paralytic and now to the scribes so that they may know who he is. And then there in verse 12. And he rose. And notice, immediately, he picked up his bed and went out before them all. And as, as the paralytic got up, immediately, now all eyes are all on the paralytic. Remember, this crowd is jam-packed. The, the, the home is full. And you just get this idea that, that the Paralytic has to just wiggle himself through the crowd as all eyes are just watching the man that was lowered from the ceiling walking out the door by the power of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, it was sufficient enough to meet the man's needs spiritually, to forgive his sin. That, that's what the paralytic needed. Whether if he realized in that moment or not, like that's the, what he needed. He didn't need the ability to walk out. But Jesus, out of the love and the compassion, heals the paralytic's disease. And I think there's a bigger thing unraveling here. Because I just love how Jesus is not just staying in just the realm of like theology. I mean, yes, it's important to tell people about the forgiveness of Christ. It's important to proclaim the mystery of the cross. Yes and amen, because that's how we're forgiven. But the gospel message also has the resurrection. Because three days later, Christ gloriously resurrects. And what does that mean for us? Is that one day we too will have a resurrection like his. It's as if this picture of the paralytic being healed is also the picture of our future restoration. I get it. I mean, I know some of us, we, we are carrying a sickness. We are carrying some kind of disease. We, we are carrying internal pains and sufferings and all these things. But this is such a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? Although we may not be relieved from these diseases and sicknesses and adversities here on this earth, but we do know that there's a future resurrection, a future and glorious hope that we get to look forward to. So church, as we think about what does it mean to be the local church? What does it mean to be Sunbury City Church as we've gathered here? Yes, we must preach the gospel. 
Tell people about the cross. Tell people that their sins can be forgiven by the blood that was shed. But may the outflow of that, may the love of that, we begin to clothe those who are naked. Feed those who are hungry. Shelter those who have no roof. Help those who are in pain. For that is the gospel hope. And ultimately, as we're reminded in Revelations 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, no pain anymore. For the former things of this world have passed away. Church, don't lose heart this morning. Gospel hope is here for you. It's here for your family. It's here for your friends. The hope of of salvation and the glorious promise of the resurrection is here. So as we live here on this life, here on this earth, may we just look to the one who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. May we cling ever so closely and so tightly to the cross of Christ that as we run this race of life, that one day Jesus will look at us and just say, well done, my good and faithful servant. For that is who Jesus is. That is our hope. Although Jesus may not was paralyzed on the mat, wasn't he paralyzed on the cross? As those nails were driven into his hands, as they were driven into his feet. But we know, as we have just been proclaiming the hope of the resurrection. Because we know it did not end on the cross, but it ended with his glorious resurrection. Where he is now exalted and ruling and reigning by the right hand of the Father. So church, may we... Be a people of humility, people of faith as we saw from the paralytic for the rest of our days and cling to Jesus for he is our true and great Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you for just the your authority. Father, we, we, we know and we realize that because of our sin, because of our disobedience towards you, that we deserve death. But because of your steadfast love, your graciousness and your mercy, that you sent your son to die upon that cross to shed his blood so that our sins may be forgiven so that then we may have life. So Father, may we just make Jesus the king of our hearts, the rightful king that should rule and reign over our lives. May everything we do as an individual and as Sunbury City Church, as we've gathered here, be about you and who Jesus is to our community, to our families, and to this nation and world. But God, we love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray.